From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk banking. We've got a C-suite conversation here. We're talking Texas. We're talking banking. Uh, we do that with Rob Holmes, CEO of Texas Capital Bank. Uh, joins us, uh, Dan Hoverman? Hoverman. Hoverman. Yeah. Thank you very much, sir. Head of Corporate and Investment Banking, Texas Capital Bank. Uh, guys, talk to us about what is Texas Capital Bank, who are your customers, how's business? Well, that's a lot to unpack. Yeah, so that's why we went to the top guy. <laughs> what is Texas Capital Bank? Um, it is the first full-service financial services firm to be headquartered in Texas. Nice. Uh, we did a wholesale transformation over the last two and a half years. Most people overuse the word transformation. There is nothing that hasn't been touched in this bank. We, we redid the tech stack, uh, the operating org structure, uh, about 25 to 40 new products and services, depending on how you define them. Uh, we did segmentation. We founded an investment bank, both wholesale investment banking and also mm. uh, institutional sales and trading. Uh, both are uh, profitable in the first year, which is pretty great. We also have a uh, top five mortgage warehouse business in the country, uh, which, which allowed us to build, frankly, the, the sales and trading floor off the back of that with, with uh, mortgage trading, TBA, and gestation. Uh, so we're, we're a wholesale bank built for businesses, but also private wealth to people that run and own those businesses. Um, we have uh, national verticals, our corporate bank, uh, industry verticals, so FIG, TMT, Energy, um, Diversified, uh, healthcare and, and healthcare, government nice. nonprofit. So yep. those are those are the those are the industry verticals that are nationwide. Host, uh, mortgage warehouses nationwide, seasonal trading obviously, investment banking obviously, uh, but the core um, focus and base and scale is, is Texas for sure. We're the number one lender uh, to Texas businesses of any Texas-based bank, which is a pretty big deal. Nice. That is a big deal. It is. It's a big state, man. It is a large state, that and they got country. a lot going on down there. They know. So how important, I mean, the oil price must be extremely important to you, and we're watching today, West Texas Intermediate went up over $95 a barrel. I guess that's good for the Texas economy. Well, the, the, the great thing about Texas economy is how diversified it is. So um, oil and gas about 9%, and everybody talks about oil and gas and fossil fuels, and they talk about Texas. But it's also the, the number one and two uh, win in, in solar provider. We, we, produ we produce more alternative energy than California. So um, it's, uh, look, oil, is, oil is a big deal, um, but it's, uh, it, it's not as big as it used to be as and how people be, right? think of Texas. Yeah. So if you look at our ETF, which Dan can talk about, um, our ETF is, is uh, comprised of contribution of the subsector to GDP, the market cap. And the five largest holdings in that is Tesla, McKesson, Waste Management, Schwab, and Exxon. 
Now, I can't think of a more diverse economy yeah. than that, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and the economy, look, the economy is 10% of the economy of the United States. You Absolutely. can't say ETF without telling me the ticker. TXS. TXS. Texas without the vowels. <laughs> TXS. Texas without the vowels. Pretty vowel. cool, right? Hey, yeah. ticker. Hey, Dan, on the corporate investment banking side, what are your clients saying about their outlook here? I mean, how's business for your clients? It remains very robust. If you look at uh, the way that folks are uh, it, kind of participating in the economy, at least from the Texas angle, if there's a recession in the United States, there probably won't be a recession in Texas. So if you look at the performance in the TXS itself, kind of outperforming uh, the Russell mid-cap or the S&P, the more Texan you get, the more the stocks outperform. So the you know the outperformance on the index is really driven by kind of how closely tied people are to the Texas economy. We got to introduce him to Matt Winkler. That's a column right there. Yes, exactly. Yes, See, we have a, our founder of Bloomberg News. He loves going into state by state, looking at the data and saying that you know, for example, California's. People saying uh, California, San Francisco in trouble. It's not what the data shows. Um, so he'd love to see talking about that kind of data here. So, I mean, what's the future? What's the next three to five years for your bank here? Is it continue to grow your share in Texas? What's the kind of your strategy? No, look, here? look, here's the great news. We started two and a half years ago on a wholesale transformation. Uh, there was a lot of risk in doing everything at once. Uh, that is done. There was risk in acceptance of the strategy by clients and by employees and talent. Check, check. The entire platform was built. About a month ago was the first time we could say the platform was built, the capabilities were there, and the talent was there top to bottom, both both top down and bottom up. And so what's what's next for us is just going delighting clients, onboarding clients as fast as we are today. We onboarded more clients in the first quarter than any other quarter in the history of the bank, in spite of the first quarter events at regional banks. We onboarded 30% more clients in the second quarter than the first quarter. Um, we are a, a top 10 uh, agent for re leading bank syndications in the country for the first six months. So it's, it's just, you know, we've done everything. Most of the people on this platform they come that are leaders have come from much more complex jobs and much more uh, larger companies and we've all done it a thousand times we haven't done it with this jersey on so we got to do it with this jersey on and just build what we have and and we're really 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 excited about doing that and the client response has been overwhelming hey Dan, when you go into pitch business to on a piece of corporate banking investment banking business how often are you competing against some of our neighbors here in New York City. Who's, who's your competitor really day to day? Yeah, there, there's really only two types of competitors when you think about it. So we're either competing against other Texas banks, and the sales point there is that we're full service and nobody else that's headquartered in Texas is. And so at some point, unless you bank with us, you're going to outgrow your your relationship. If you want to have a relationship where you never need to go move your accounts, you never need to make you know, a new friendship with an RM, Frankly, it's going to be tough to find folks that are more maniacally focused on delivering great client experience. Then you should bank with us. Or we're competing with one of the banks that are in New York. And at, at some point, uh, our job really is just to make them fungible. We work well with every New York bank. We, you know, a lot of us have a history of working. You work with all the New York banks? We, we'll, Even those that uh, have a say in social issues? If the clients haven't you banned them from Texas? <laughs> it's it's uh, you know we're we're all about clients. We had outcome, your governor right? in here yesterday. So yeah, he's it, with us this week. Oh, yeah. there we go. That's why he was here yesterday. Yep. Okay, yep. he's going to ring the bell with us today. 
Oh, excellent. Okay. Yeah, very good. Having dinner with him tonight. So uh, what what I would say is, um, it is it is highly unusual for a person running a business um, or that owns a business that wants to defer the decision making about his or her business to San Francisco, New York, or Charlotte. So if they can get the same products and services and be locally covered, that's their preference. And we, we, have, a, we, we have a high amount of confidence we can do that. But what's, what's uh, recruiting talent like? I mean, obviously, it's a very hot place to move, right? So, Everybody yeah. wants to be, yep. we hear about Austin all the time. I love Dallas. Uh, I like Paul San Antonio. Loves San Antonio. Sure. So recruiting talent. Um, got some good schools in Texas. Okay, so <laughs> Texas has, is the only state in the country with 11 tier one universities. Um, we have started a junior program, first junior program ever at this bank, like everything else first at this bank. Uh, the first year we had 60 spots, we had 800 applications. Second year, 60 spots, 2,000 applications. Third year, 60 spots, about 2,800. So junior, great. Senior, um, let's just put it this way. I've had more than uh, two or three CEOs in New York call me and ask me how the hell I hired that person. <laughs> and uh, so I would say we, we were able to hire, um, it's not easy, but people want to be a part of a build, they want to make a difference, and they love living in Texas. What's the biggest challenge you guys face right now? Uh, the biggest challenge is, you know what, just what I said earlier, we, we've got to execute perfectly. Like when we led the largest um, agented debt deal in the country two weeks ago for a Texas-based oil and gas company, now think about that. The largest sole-led deal in the country, bank Texas deal? Capital did. A, a it, loan it bank? It was a capital markets deal. Okay. Um, we don't own any of it. Okay. It was globally distributed with the best investors in the world. And um, we did it great, but it's our first time. I mean, if you go talk to the CEO and the board, the client, they love it. And by the way, a money center bank pitched it, pitched a different structure, and spit the bit. So, and which is, causes harm to that client. So they gave them the wrong advice, and they failed. Two months later, we got it done. All right, good stuff. I'm glad you guys uh, uh, spared the time to come in and see us. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, we always like uh, talking to some of those uh, folks out there getting it done on the ground. Rob Holmes, CEO of Texas Capital Bank, as well as Dave Hoverman, head of corporate and investment banking. Texas Capital uh, Bank, uh, based in the Big D. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's switch over back to these uh, markets here. Again, the S&P up about four-tenths of 1% uh, near an intraday high. Uh, the NASDAQ up about three-tenths of 1%. Liz Young joins us. She's head of investment strategies at SoFi. Uh, hey, Liz, when you talk to your clients, when I think of a SoFi client, I think of more of a younger client and maybe have a longer perspective in these markets. A, is that the case? And B, what are you telling them these days? 
Yeah, thanks for having me. So generally speaking, our investors or the investors on our platform do skew younger. About 65% of them are between the ages of 20 and 40. So compared to the average investor or the average high net worth investor, they are younger. However, we do have uh, quite a few that are over the age of 40 as well. So it kind of runs the age gamut. I would say, you know, most most of our investors do have a longer time horizon. There can be a challenge in convincing them of that, though. And we've got a market and, and an environment today that really just forces all of us to focus on the short term. And, and we hang on every data point, every word from the Fed. And it does make us more short term in nature when we're thinking about our investing decisions. And just the individual investor of today is a trader. I mean, they, they really do enjoy trading individual stocks. And I think that that's uh, an important distinction to make. But there are a, a lot of investors. Idea? I mean, well, isn't it a retail know, investor trading stocks just a recipe for losing money? No, it's it's a recipe for learning. And, I, you know, it's not necessarily that you would lose My money. My brother and I, learned I a lot trading stocks as well, like yeah. to the tune of losing 200 grand in the first year. <laughs> What a great yeah, lesson. I, mean, I, I do think that it's a wonderful thing that there are so many individual investors today interested in, in getting engaged in their investment horizons and getting engaged in the process. I think really the risk is more that if the information that you're given is, is headline worthy, you're probably going to end up concentrated in a certain handful of names or in the names that are just the big ones. And that's not necessarily... Uh, creating a diversified portfolio. And then there's also this fallacy of familiarity. So investing in companies that you're only familiar with rather than making sure that you're diversifying out of, across sector, across asset class, across investment type even and vehicle. So um, I think it's perfectly fine to invest in individual stocks here and there, but I, I wouldn't make it necessarily the core of your portfolio. And, and you want to make sure that you still own a decent number of individual stocks. List, how do your clients use ETFs. I mean, ETFs has just been a phenomenal growth story within financial services really over the last decade plus. Um, you know, my day was mutual funds. Now it's all ETFs. How, how, how are they used by your customers? They're very widely used by our customers and, and they're very widely used by individual investors everywhere, largely because Number one, they give you an opportunity to hold a lot of securities for a much lower cost than than many of the mutual funds of the past did. So there's there's better opportunity there, and and there's great diversification opportunity in them. I think ETFs are now that they're such a big part of the market, it is important to still do your research on them though. And there there are a number of different options in each space, even as you get. To more niche parts of the market. So, for example, let's say you want to buy a dividend ETF. You want to do the research and make sure that you're buying a dividend ETF that is holding companies with sustainable dividends or growing dividends rather than just currently high dividends, right? So there's still different things that you need to do uh, to make sure that you're not completely passively investing. But I think ETFs are a great tool for investors of, of all wealth categories to use for exposure to the market. Do you see people piling into, investors piling into, you know, treasuries or places where you can get safe return for the first time in a generation? I don't know if piling in uh, is, is the right way to think about that, but I think that over the last year or so, many people have moved into treasuries more than they ever expected to. And 
it has been a tough it's been a tough trade lately as we've seen a sell off in treasuries particularly on the longer end of the curve but this is also an environment where many investors have not seen yields like this on treasuries ever in their investing lifespan so it's offering you to get paid to wait and i don't think that that's a bad idea uh, I do think that there are plenty of people who have also used money market funds to do that. Um, but you know, there's still a decent amount of appetite for equities. I mean, the S&P is only down about 7% since that local high in July, and that's not even in correction territory yet. So there's obviously still uh, plenty of money in the equity market. Uh, what's your market call here, Liz? What are you, what are you telling your customers? I've been pretty cautious all year, uh, obviously, wrongfully so, in the beginning of the year. I, I continue to be cautious. And right now, what we're seeing in the market, which I wrote about in my blog today, is some quiet weakness. There's been a pullback, but quietly weakening from a momentum perspective. So if you look at things like the 50-day moving average of the S&P recently rolling over and, and moving downward, you look at the number of S&P members trading above their 200-day moving average, that percentage is now down to 40%, and that's dropped pretty sharply in the last couple months. Now, not near crisis levels, not near really deep levels of a pullback. Usually you get that number somewhere in the 11% range uh, when things are really bad, but it has dropped. And, and then you look at things like the relative strength indexes, which uh, usually indicate whether things are oversold yet, and that tells investors, okay, we've had a pullback. Was it enough? Is it time for a bounce? And the relative strength index, the RSI reading on stocks, shows that things have gotten a bit worse but are not washed out yet. So I do think that there's probably more risk to the downside here, especially as yields keep rising. Are you concerned about the government shutdown um, as an investor? I mean, we're all worried that you know, the panda cam could be turned <laughs> off. But does it matter to the markets? Uh, the markets don't seem overly concerned with it yet. I do think it matters to the markets. This is a story, though, that keeps repeating itself through market cycles. We It seems like we're talking about a government shutdown every six months to a year. And it's it's no longer a new or surprising headline or, or worry for us to climb as market participants. And what I think we've been conditioned to believe is that, yeah, things might get a little dicey into the 11th hour, but eventually they figure it out. So I think the bigger risk here is that there is a shutdown that lasts a longer period of time, and it occurs during a time when we're hanging on all of that data. And what if some of the data is not available as we expect it, even just for a few days? So I do think there's a risk in the market because of that. I think, you know, we're not in a place where we want more uncertainty, that's for sure. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily a good thing to have on the horizon. But so far, markets don't seem that spooked by it. You have, I mean, you did mention in your blog, um, which I'm pretty sure on the money, right? If I look at SoFi.com. Yes. So uh, you, you point out that the VIX has been marching steadily higher. It's not alarming yet, um, right. right? But it is starting to creep up and look more and more interesting. At Right now it's trading at uh, 17.9. Right. Well, it's funny. I mean, as investors lately, we've been conditioned to expect a VIX somewhere between 13 and 14, which, True. as we know, is historically low. So having it at 17, 18, it's been above 18 for a few days. Having it in those that level seems high compared to what we've been experiencing. 
on average, it's not really that high. And the mental threshold is usually 20. So as long as it's below 20, things are still typically considered subdued or, you know, not not necessarily unsafe or, or, or terribly volatile. But it's worth noting that it has marched up, you know, four points or so in a pretty short period of time. And that goes along with some of the other things that I mentioned earlier in the interview with, you know, number of stocks above the 200 day falling, the RSI, uh, number of stocks that are showing oversold, rising. So there's there's clearly some breakdown and some weakening happening under the surface in the market. Again, none of this is at alarming levels, but it's happening enough that it's starting to feel like paper cuts and, and it's a nagging pain that I don't think we should gloss over. All right, Liz, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Uh, as always, Liz Young, head of investment strategies at SoFi, giving us uh, her market call here. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's continue our discussion on the ecosystem uh, ESG, the green outlook, if you will. We can do that with Dr. Uh, Lise Castillo Nilas, uh, she is with the firm Ramball, uh, and she joins us via Zoom. Hey, um, Lise, can you just tell us, let's start off real quick, what does Ramball do? What are you guys doing over there? Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Uh, Ramble is a consulting company and engineering company as well, and we do a lot of environmental health sciences and other types of sciences. So what is that? I mean, you like measure the hole in the ozone or what, what kind of sciences are we talking about? So we do a lot of different things, but I personally work um, heavily on biodiversity and ecosystem services. So we help our clients meet their sustainability goals in a variety of different ways and help them increase biodiversity on their sites and, you know, form the goals that will help them reach these reach and, the points they want to get to. And, and so what is the kind of the business case for this? When you go talk to your clients, how do you frame it? How do they think about it? Well, the business case is that unfortunately nature isn't an unlimited resource, even though our financial markets have treated it that way in the past. Um, for example, if pollinators disappear, most humans are going to starve because 75% of our crops rely on pollinators. So, um, I mean, the business case is that our businesses and our societies depend upon natural resources. And when those resources disappear, businesses are affected. So um, this is we can already see this happening with the increase in extreme weather events and the resulting increase in insurance premiums. So, so, so I mean, who, but who are your I mean, I think we all agree with you there. Yep. Um, yeah. uh I think about the bees a lot, for example. Um, but but what can we do about it? I mean, who are, for example, your clients? Are they small, medium-sized businesses, bigger businesses? Do they have a lot of land? Um, is it you know? Can they plant things? Can they I don't know, uh, hunt? What's what's the idea? Well, the idea is that. I mean, all businesses can contribute whatever their size. My clients are small businesses to very large businesses. The larger ones do tend to own a lot of land, and some of that land has been contaminated in the past, um, often from historical, you know, historical events before people knew that they were doing this contamination, before there were laws to control it. And they're trying to clean that up, and they're trying to improve biodiversity on those sites. 
Um, in other cases, there are clients that just want to contribute more and want to like build their image and you know their social license. And so then they want to increase nature on their properties as well. But you don't have to have large properties to do that. Right. You can do that on your small building too. How do you, I mean, do you make a distinction between nature uh, and climate change and climate action? Um, nature and climate are really intertwined. Um, the, basically, we, there's pretty good agreement that we're not going to reach our climate goals unless we're also striving for nature goals. So plants and algae, they pull, they pull greenhouse gases out of the air. And if we're just trying to reduce greenhouse gases without, you know, increasing the area of habitat for these species, then we're not going to really have great success. So uh, what, what are the types of companies that you think are, are doing a good job, not by industry, but just kind of what kind of success stories do you find? And maybe what are some of the frustrations that you have when you go out and talk to different types of companies? Um, I mean, the successes that I find are typically it's individuals within companies that are just really motivated and are really being a force for change within their company to make like the small decisions that add up over time. And, you know, as they're having successful projects, then others in their company are seeing that and getting on the bandwagon. So, for example, companies that are using nature-based solutions instead of standard environmental solutions, and that often comes down to individual project managers making those decisions. How much of a concern is is greenwashing? Um, you know, I, uh, um, I think we, you know we have the same concerns, and so I will you know do what I can to recycle, for example, or to buy recycled materials. But I don't ever know, uh, you know, what's happening once I put my cans in the aluminum bin and my paper in the in that box. You know, it's kind of um, hard to see what happens when it moves down the line. Yeah, I mean, there's some concern for, for greenwashing. Um, there are frameworks out now, like the TNFD, which just opened, um, which was just launched last week. That's a task force on nature-related financial disclosures. These kind of frameworks can help companies really systematically look at what their dependencies and their impacts are to nature and to report those in really clear ways. And so the, you know, the uptake of this kind of disclosure method is going to help a lot with greenwashing. That's kind of where I wanted to go. Here, here at Bloomberg, at least, we're, we're big on data. Um, and I know there's been, when I talk to investors that want to maybe invest in, in an ethical way, focusing on ESG, just broadly defined, one of their concerns is they just don't have as, as much data as they would like. The disclosure is not consistent across companies and industries. Um, it differs even from the U.S. versus non-U.S. Where, where are we in just in terms of kind of getting companies to think about, you know, good disclosure? Well, some disclosure is required now, especially in Europe, there is the, um, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive is going to be requiring disclosures. And that's not just for European companies, that's also for um, any, well, large companies typically that have a presence in Europe. So that is going to be required soon. There are also these voluntary disclosing measures like TNSD or science-based targets for nature that companies are taking up. I mean, I think basically this is just getting to that investors want to know what the risks are, that their investments are actually, you know, taking into consideration what their dependencies are in nature, and they're preparing for that so that investors are not making a bad investment or taking a big risk. You mentioned that we won't um, meet our uh, 
I guess, temperature goals if we don't have the kind of biodiversity that's necessary in our ecosystems. Are you confident that we're making real progress here? I mean, I think we are making real progress. Um, I don't think we're making enough progress, unfortunately. All right, Lise, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, this is a big, big issue for a lot of companies and a lot of investors and for the markets in general. Dr. Lise Castillo-Nilas, uh, she's a biodiversity and ecosystems senior manager uh, at Rambol, trying to work with companies to, uh, I guess, a lot of things, but just kind of interact better with nature, reduce the carbon footprint. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's check in with uh, a player out there in the business, David Rainey. He's a portfolio manager at Hennessy Focus Funds. Uh, he's been in the business a while, but of course, the absolute highlight of his resume is his MBA from the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University, part of the great class of 1991. Uh, David Rainey, how are you doing, course. my friend? <laughs> Good to talk to you, Paul. David, let's step back here a little bit here. What's your market call here? Um, there's a lot of crosswinds for investors to deal with, a lot of headwinds, quite quite frankly. How are you guys just kind of viewing this market here? Well, you know, we're long-term oriented investors, um, and we've always taken a business owner's perspective and invest in, in public equities. And, you know, we approach every investment whether it's in the fund or on our watch list, as if we're going to own it indefinitely. I mean, clearly what has the market all shook up today and over the past year or two is inflation, the rising rates, and what's that doing to low and moderate income Americans? And it's doing a lot. And so we're sensitive to that. We don't think we have a lot of exposure uh, to businesses and um, product and services companies that, that have a ton of low and moderate income exposure, but, but we're aware of it. And, um, you know, traditionally, um, that's the class of Americans that tends to take it on the chin more so than others. Uh, and so, um, you know, but, but if I step back and I have, a, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit of gray hair, um, I look back at the Fed funds rate 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago, two, three, four percent, and I'll look at a 10-year treasury, and it would have had a four, five, or a six handle as well. And so what's going on with the yield curve, the level, and the shape of the curve isn't surprising as we normalize. I guess we're kind of back to the new normal, and that's what the market's waking up to. So when you think about long-term investing, I would think that management quality, really getting a good handle on management, their ability to redeploy capital, uh, grow the business, generate returns, that would be 
top, top of the list of the things you look at. How, how do you assess management quality? Yeah, it, um, we actually take a criteria-driven approach. We have key uh, five key criteria, and you hit it on in the head. Uh, management is one of those five. We look at the business model, its ability to generate attractive returns on invested capital. We look at management, and you, you can't screen for management quality. This isn't something that, that pops up on a screen and, and tells you to take a better look, but we look for managers that are good at running the business day-to-day and investing the business's free cash flow back into it to grow the firm's economic value. We also look at the reinvestment opportunities that are out there. Uh, we look at valuation and then finally tail risk. What's the likelihood that this compounder uh, gets uh, upset because of a balance sheet issue, fat or fashion, this type of thing. But um, you're absolutely right. If you're going to own a stock for more than a quarter or two, management is one of the key considerations to make before you put uh, money at risk. I look at some of the names that you guys own, and a couple jump out at me, most notably because they're both in the uh, from Richmond, Virginia, a place very near and dear to my heart here. Mm-hmm. Let's start with CarMax, because sure. that's, that's in the news here today. Talk to us about what you heard from CarMax and how that may impact your thesis of this name. Well, uh, I mean, again, you kind of step back and you look at what happened with COVID. Uh, I mean, there was a time when CarMax was trading, uh, I think back in uh, February or March of 2020 at very distressed levels, uh, almost as if there was an existential threat and the business was going to evaporate. Um, fast forward to today, they've made enormous progress with their omni-channel initiative. They're the country's largest used car dealer or retailer, retailer, and its differentiated business model uh, is based on providing better customer, a better customer experience by having a large selection of high quality, uh, low mileage uh, cars across uh, a nationwide network and no haggle prices. And what we've seen during our holding period in CarMax, we've owned it for over a decade, is that they've steadily taken market share because of their better customer experience. And so we think that they're doing all the things today as the market, as they're kind of bumping along at the bottom, so to speak, uh, at, um, at, at, at growing uh, a better customer experience, particularly through Omnichannel, which is the ability to seamlessly connect uh, what happens at a store with what a customer wants to do online and uh, bringing that all together. And so, uh, you know, CarMax is a name that we think uh, will recover nicely as uh, used car sales pick up typically in the U.S. Um, in any given year, about 40 million used cars are sold. Uh, we're probably bumping around at about 35 million uh, this year because of the pull forward over COVID. And, um, we think that um, as CarMax uh, works its way out of this macro environment, uh, that there's 2 to $4 of hidden earnings power in the stock. So uh, I think consensus is about $3, $3.20 this year. There's another 2 to $4 as the market recovers, and they see very good incrementals on the growing sales. 30 seconds, Dave, real quick. Uh, Markel Corporation, another Richmond company. Yeah, uh, rich and based property casualty, uh, specialty property casualty insurance company um, uh, with important 
holdings in public equities and control positions in private businesses. Many people uh, talk about it in terms of Berkshire Hathaway, uh, describe it as a baby Berkshire. Oh. Uh, we're very excited about Markel's opportunity going forward. Uh, look, property casualty insurance is a high single digit return on equity business, but they've yep. consistently generated low double digit to mid teens because of their equity positions in both the public markets and now a growing uh, private right. portfolio. So we're very, very excited there. It's kind of got a Berkshire t kind of stock price, 1500 bucks a share here. Very interesting. David Rainey, thanks so much for joining us. Dave Rainey, he's a portfolio manager at Hennessy Focus Fund. I'll see you hopefully down at Duke. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.